0: Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting laborer leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven. Several months into the pandemic, I received a package in the mail from a friend. It contained a note written on stationery from the Great Northern Hotel, the fictional hotel in Twin Peaks, in case you don't know, in which my friend mused that in Camus' The Plague, the characters attempted to preserve some sense of normal as the world came apart around them by doing, or basically going about their daily routines. The key difference between the fiction and our fact, they did it together while each of us were grappling with individual isolation in our own way. My friend used the time to create the first two issues of a new history zine called Chicago Gets Four Stars, which he included in the package. The first issue contained stories like this one.
1: Whitechapel Club torches corpse. On July sixteenth, 1892, the Whitechapel Club cremated the body of Morris Allen Collins on a pyre along the shore of Lake Michigan. Collins willed his body to Chicago's secretive society. They sang, recited poetry, and made the ashes part of their morbid rites. The private Whitechapel Club took its name from the London district of Jack the Ripper's killings. Formed in 1889 by journalists, in order to laugh in the face of death, they appointed Jack as the honorary president. The entryway to the private club was an oak door with stained glass skull and crossbones. It bore the words, I, too, have lived in Arcady, from Nicholas Poussin's painting, Et in Arcadia Ego. Lethal trophies lined the walls. Murder evidence like knives and guns, fire engine bits from Chicago's Great Fire, the bloody shirt of a Native American victim of the Battle of Wounded Knee, skulls those popular memento mori, was applied by Dr. John C. Spray, an asylum superintendent. Tombstone Thompson, decorator and chaplain of the Whitechapel Club, customized them to make gas lamps by sawing off the tops of the skulls and fitting glass in the eyes. Prostitutes' skulls became goblets. The silver-lined cranium of a famous shady lady called Waterford Jane held a special place of honor. In addition to skull-sipping, Guests, like presidents-to-be William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt, were required to carry a sword that a wagon driver had used to kill his wife. A noose hung, or as it hanged, from the ceiling. The coffin-shaped dining table featured brass nails which each member's names. Morris Allen Collins, writer for the Labor Inquirer, signed himself in the records as M.A. Collins, President's Suicide Club, Dallas, Texas. Raised as an orphan in skirting poverty, he was struck by a train in October 1890. After the accident, he suffered from seizures. He attempted to kill himself by overdosing on morphine. On July 8, 1892, he committed suicide with a shot to the head. Onoto's friend, Honored Joseph Jackson, pledged his body to the Whitechapel Club for cremation. The club honored his wish. On July 16, Whitechapel members readied a 20 by 18 foot pyre in the Indiana dunes. The body was transferred by train to Miller Station, then carried by wagon. Collins' corpse was fitted with a white robe. At 10.50 p.m., the members circled the pyre three times, carrying torches and intoning a dirge. The wood, soaked with flammable pitch, was set ablaze. W.C. Thompson addressed the crowd, which swelled in ranks from inquisitive locals. Dwight Baldwin performed the funeral sermon. Into the night, the harp and zither played Ernst's elegy and Shelley's poetry was read. In death, Collins continued to serve the Whitechapel Club. His ashes were gathered with trowels. The club brought them back to their headquarters, where they initiated a tradition for the members to sift their hands through his powdery, cremated remains.
0: That was Joe Mason reading from Chicago Gets Four Stars. Of course, getting a zine in the mail has become a time-honored tradition, but I can't tell you how much it meant during the time when we were all cut off from each other. For decades now, zines have been connecting people across divides of all kinds. The zine is an affordable, portable, shareable, and often deeply personal medium. In this episode of Pocket Guide to Hell, we'll be talking all things zines with our guests, Joe Mason, his wife and the manager of Quimby's Bookstore, Liz Mason, and their friend, fellow zinester and the creator of Junk Drawer, Eric Bartholomew. Junk Drawer is a really cool publication that often reveals, among other things, how bits and pieces of Chicago's past are all around us. We'll be talking about how Chicago became such a center of the zine culture, how the form has survived beyond the golden age of the copy machine, and how zines have served as intimate, idiosyncratic records of the past. Eric, Joe, and Liz, thanks for being here with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: This is going to feel strange asking in 2021, but just so we're all on the same page and also address the biggest question that some listeners, both old and young, might have. What is a zine
2: I have a short answer and I have a long answer the short answer is it's an independently published periodical that's the answer that I give when I tell people that I work in a bookstore that sells zines and they say what's a zine and then if they want to carry the conversation further then they say what do you mean and then I say well it's Published by someone that's not a major corporate conglomerate mainstream publisher. Probably not a lot of ads, although there may be some, but it's usually for small businesses. It has a small distribution radius, which is just a fancy way of saying that it doesn't have a large readership. And it's probably printed in a, on, in a small scale, you know, a couple hundred at the most or less sometimes more, sometimes it could be reprinted eventually, and it probably covers topics that are kind of outside the mainstream, sometimes a little bit more bizarre or idiosyncratic.
0: That's a good answer. Joe, anything you'd like to add to that?
1: Um, i just say I think of it in terms of making a zine, which is get several pieces of paper, fold them like a book, pour your heart and soul into it, And then collate it with a long-arm stapler. <laughs>
0: <laughs> also good. Eric, anything that we've left out?
1: Oh, I mean,
3: yeah, it can be a stapler. It, could, it really could be anything if you call it a zine, if it's something that's self-published and made and created. Um, I think you know, if you walk into Quimby's and you say, this is my zine, I think that's, uh, that's what it would be.
0: And we'll get, uh, we'll get a rather unique example of, of what the, the form is capable of a little bit later in this episode. Um, but so now that we've kind of defined what zines are, um, Liz, would you mind maybe talking briefly about like how they emerged and and when they emerged?
2: Sure. So there's a lot of different ways you can go with this and a lot of different angles in terms of how people interpret the emergence of zines. A lot of people say that it started with science fiction fanzines in the fifties, so people would write about their love for the media. Maybe it would almost be like fan fiction or, you know, just expounding on their thoughts on the science fiction of the day. Um, And then, so this is the short answer, of course, uh, and by no means definitive. Punk happened. That broadened the scope of zines to cover other things besides literature. So music, other sort of subversive or counterculture elements um i mean of course there's other things that arguably are you know underground newspapers you know like paul krasner's the realist one could make an argument for that even though it was stapled in the upper left corner like a newsletter you know um and then of course riot girl zines in the 90s gave rise to uh, a an interesting element of zines that were kind of like merging the political with the personal, of course, with uh, third-wave feminism. And so you would have per-zines, you know, like personal zines. Um, So, you know, people writing about their immediate personal experience, not that that wasn't a topic that hadn't been covered before, of course, but, you know, distributed in a way that was stapled, collated, put out into the world, um, given out at punk shows or sold through other means, whatever, and, and, of course, you know, now there's the folks that grew up reading zines and making zines. They then be, get older, become teachers, archivists, librarians, or run bookstores and teach workshops so that there's a younger generation of folks who grew up maybe, you know, with the Internet and have, have learned from their elder zinester uh, adults how to make zines and so there's now the permutations of zines that kind of sometimes look like the internet (laughs) sometimes if they're taught by someone who is really given like a hands-on element of how to cut and paste you know then some of the the newer zines will look like the older zines (laughs) you know there's a lot of different ways and can go like I said, not a comprehensive history of zines, but those are some of the main elements that people think of when they think of zines.
0: Well, sticking with this idea of the you know the political becoming personal, I'm curious to kind of learn from each of you about like how you got involved in this. Like Joe, what what and when were, was the first zine that you created?
1: Oh well, my uh, that go, that would go back to high school. Uh, my friend Andy Lowry. Um, in the burbs, a uh, young woman of color, uh, put out a zine called Fuel, which was more of an anthology. Um, she solicited a lot of com- uh, contributors. She put that out through her. I knew some other people are doing things. She even um, introduced me to someone who put out a zine called... Now, I don't even remember. It was a chapbook, but I did lay out for... I did a layout for him. He sent me his poems. I put it all together. Um, Went off and then just discovered the world of, like, Quimby's and zines and Liz and just the deep dive into that. Um, I've always meant to do my own zine, and finally the pandemic uh, just gave me the time to do one.
0: So wait, so this, so Chicago Gets Four Stars is really your, your first...
1: Uh, Chicago, yeah, yeah. it's my first solo zine. I did a collaborative issue of uh, Caboose with Liz called Masons on Masons, How to Start a Secret Society. Mm. Um, But that was just a couple articles by me. Really, the bulk of the work and the layout was Liz.
0: Secret Society, like the Whitechapel Club. Exactly. the excerpt (laughs) that you read from us. Uh, And Liz, so I'm keeping with this, um, since Joe mentioned Caboose, what was your first experience creating a zine?
2: sure so I started making zines in the 90s and the first zines that I made which I still make with one of my friends was called cul-de-sac and we just recently put out our ninth issue but we were dormant on cul-de-sac for like 20 years but we started making them in the 90s and I remember Julie saying that she had just had an unhappy love affair and that the guy that she had dated made a zine and she said "Um, we need to make a zine because it This We need to, you know, get in front of this. And so we put out cul-de-sac. And then when I started working at Quimby's, like, I I mean, I basically ended up working at the store because I sold my zines there on consignment, which means that the store pays for it after it sells. And then I harassed the store until they hired me for after a couple years. And then that's where I've been for the past 20 years. Um, And then I started doing caboose in 2002, and now I I just recently put out issue 13. And then I've had lots of one-offs, I also do a zine called Awesome Things, and you know, some other, got my hands in other pots, or what, is that even an expression? What, you know what I'm trying (laughs) to say. And- Fingers and pies. Fingers and pies, that sounds good. And um, so that's kind of my history with zines. Cool,
0: and you know, Eric, we want to make sure to include you. What was your first experience creating a zine?
3: Yeah, it was probably, um, just doing fiction zines, Hmm. uh, in the late nineties and then going to Quimby's and discovering all these amazing zines. And I did several others before really, uh, finding my junk tour theme and, uh, yeah. And then meeting, uh, Billy the bunny who did uh, loop distro and he distroed my zine, which I thought was really cool. And, uh, yeah, and just meeting some other zinesters, um, going to readings. There used to be some readings they did up at Mojo's Cafe. It was in uh, Roscoe Village, and so that was kind of my experience in both, like reading, making, and then discovering that the zine community. Too.
0: Right, and I mean that seems to be such a kind of key part of of this story and this history, right? Apart from the individual zines and the experience of making them, it seems like for all three of you, it was also a way of kind of meeting like-minded people and kind of like creating a community, which is really interesting too, because the zines can take like a variety of forms, can have a variety of focuses. Um, I mean, Eric, you're talking about writing fiction. I know a lot of people like cartoonists and comic artists created zines as well. Um, And, you know it seems like Chicago in particular has been a real kind of center of kind of zine culture. You know, any thoughts on like why that happened and how it came about?
2: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with we have Steven Simbersky to thank for opening Quimby's in 1991. Um, people knew that they could bring their work there to sell it and get it out into the world. And also if it's sold, they might actually get a few dollars back that might actually cover some of their printing costs if they didn't have some kind of free copy scam happening somewhere. And Quimby's was one of the first places that really got well-known for, I mean, of course there are other places, were and are places around the country and around the world, you know, Atomic Books in Baltimore for a while, Reading Frenzy in Portland, you know, these were, were our wonderful places that would take work on consignment and sell it. But the fact that Quimby's was in Chicago and Chicago is in the Midwest meant that the area that traditionally gets passed over for things like author events or bands playing, because we're in the Midwest and the bands and the authors always go to the coasts, the Midwest kind of gets the shaft on a lot of sort of cultural output. And so to have something in a major metropolis that would offer independent publishers a place to get their work out was no small thing. And, of course, there is the literary tradition from, you know, the the Studs turkles and the, Mike Rikos and the, you know... Uh, Nelson Algren's, you know, of course, all of that is very important, too. But I I do think a lot of it has to do with the subculture that was happening at the time.
0: Yeah, Joe, do you have anything to to add to that?
2: Uh, Yeah, I
1: kind of see, like, zinesters as part of the, like, part of the punk rock continuum. And again, it's the Chicago geography, because you have, like, L, let's think of, like, the three coasts. You have, like, L.A., New York, and Chicago, where LA had like, there's a lot of pe- ability for people to use media within like, film and TV. New York had a had a uh, had the world of publishing. So like a somebody who's writing, potentially has has the potential to become more. I don't more build more of a career out of it. And then you've got us in the Midwest. Um, which is just sort of a roll-up-your-sleeves-and-we're-going-to-do-it-ourselves kind of mentality. It goes around with, like, uh, like, booking punk shows and just bl- building a scene. I feel like the zinesters are kind of uh, part of that very uh, do-it-yourself DIY aesthetic.
0: Right, which, you know, you see on, on full display at Quimby's, and just the yeah. sort of vast collection of zines that are there. And as you mentioned, Liz, they're sold on, on consignment, which has a very kind of DIY quality to it in terms of kind of how that the profits are shared. And for those of you who would like to know more about Quimby's and its history, I'd recommend getting a copy of Ever-Evolving Bastion of Freakdom, a Quimby's bookstore history in words and pictures, which was released in 2016 to mark the 25th anniversary of the store's opening. Uh, Now we'll hear a little bit from that publication as Liz describes a portion of her responsibilities managing the store, but also the store's legacy. Liz?
2: Before I learned how to manage the stress and had less experience, it caused me crazy health issues, and cancer was one of them. In remission now, thank you. Hell if I know if this job causes cancer, but I wouldn't put my stress levels out of the question and thinking about it. As I aged, I gave the entirety of my 30s, as well as my 20s to this store, and I continue into my 40s here, I learned ways to manage the stress and gained problem-solving strategies that help but I still perpetually feel like I'm never as on top of things as I'd like to be. When I interviewed for the position, when I moved from being below my predecessor at the store into the manager position when she left, the owner asked me where I saw myself in the next four years and I didn't know. For all I knew, I'd still be here, and so I am. What I do know and still know is that I don't plan on having kids. This store ended up being the child I'd care for, because that's the type of energy an institution like this requires. Even right down to the alarm going off in the middle of the night because something fell off the shelf. I still have to be here to try to convince the police, the alarm company has called, that they shouldn't give us a ticket for a false alarm. And that's because I live half a mile away from the store. Having measured it with a pedometer, I know that it is .56 miles. That alarm going off in the middle of the night is the child screaming for their bottle. And because I can bike here, I get here before the cops do. Quimby's employees take what they've learned and do things like go back to school to get an advanced art degree or start a comics distro. And it can feel like those are my children that leave the nest. Well, more like peers that leave the nest. Our ages aren't so drastically different. We've worked within feet of each other for a few years and the relationships that are forged are like family and that they are for better or for worse. Just like family members, sometimes we enjoy each other. Sometimes we get on each other's nerves. Or maybe they grow up and go out into the world and I stay here because I'm in a perpetual state of arrested development, which is probably closer to the truth. But it always comes back to them leaving and me having to train somebody anew and the learning curve is steep. It takes takes months or years to learn the many, many idiosyncratic things about the store. Thankfully, we don't have as much turnover as other retail establishments because we are so particular about the interview process and I try to put hard work into training them.
0: Thank you, Liz. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We've been talking to Liz Mason, uh, the manager of Quimby's bookstore, her husband Joe Mason, and Eric Bartholomew about all things zines and the history of zines and zine culture in Chicago. Uh, We're going to take a brief break now, but when we return, we'll look at some individual zines and the role they've played in preserving Chicago's past. Welcome back to Pocket Guide to Hell. Elliot and I have with us zine makers Eric Bartholomew, Joe Mason, and Liz Mason. Now, Liz, we've talked a little in the first half of the episode about your own experiences as a maker of zines, in addition to your work as a manager of Quimby's. But I'm wondering now if you can tell us more about your own publications and what inspires them.
2: Yeah, I mostly write, I guess now they would call it creative nonfiction. But to me, it was just, I'm writing my thoughts out. I guess you could say they're articles or maybe they're essays or in zine parlance, I guess we might say ranting and raving. (laughs) But I tend to pick a theme and then each of the articles in that issue are that theme. The theme tends to emerge from I'm writing a bunch of articles and I guess they're kind of all about the same thing in a weird way because we all go through phases, of course. And that is also true for... The other zine, so that's true for Caboose, and it is also true for the zine that I do with my friend Julie called Cul-de-Sac that I was talking about earlier. The one zine that I do that departs from that method is Awesome Things, which is basically a list of things that I find awesome. And the goal is to remember that happiness breeds happiness, joy breeds joy. So I know this sounds really. I don't know, um, uh, new agey or arguably almost (laughs) Oprah-ish. But before I fall asleep every night in my journal, I try to write down a few things that I thought were awesome that day or at least brought me some kind of joy, whether it's snippets of conversations that I've had or some very particular thing that I realized I love or something that I saw that was really great. And when I started sharing these things and conversations with people, everyone told me that I needed to put them in a zine, so I started doing that. And that's the project that I work on when I feel like doing something creative and the rest of my head is unable to form complete sentences.
0: And I'm wondering then, I mean, if you'd be willing then to to share a little bit with us now.
2: So what I'm going to read from right now is from the most recent issue of caboose which is the connection issue and so of course all the articles that are in it are about connection in varying ways and because we're on the radio a selection that i have picked for today is about my time working in college radio and it's about when i was going back and digitizing my college radio shows from the 90s that I had put on cassette tape. And the article, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's called Painful But Hilarious Time Travel. I'd love to be able to say that the ridiculous projects I engage in are a result of the too-much-time-on-my-hands situation of the pandemic that everybody jokes about. But the truth is that because I work 40-plus hours a week, that are not even at home the ridiculous activities i do are not a result of the pandemic the ridiculous activities i do are a result of me being a ridiculous person and carving out time to do them ridiculously unlike everybody else who's like with all this downtime i've been quarantined at home i flow all my stuffed animals i mean flow being my stuffed animals is a hundred percent something i could see myself doing in the right state of mind but it certainly wouldn't be because I'm bored and stuck at home. It would be me adding flow be my stuffed animals to my to-do list and getting up early before I go to work to get busy with my vacuuming haircut machine on my plushy panda. That being said, an activity I am doing that is a direct result of the pandemic is digitizing my college radio shows from the 90s. I'd recorded them on cassettes as this was before archiving on the internet was a common thing. Allow me to explain. Listening to myself from that age now, I immediately cringe, roll my eyes, and shift uncomfortably. The music is fine, typical 90s college radio fare, but listening to me talk is painful. I have the affect of a crappy comedian on quaaludes. I make references to things I was learning about in class and not even doing so correctly. In one voiceover, I make reference to a Petrarchan beloved, Ugh, really? And here's a winning quote. Emily's sassy lime is composed of three high school students just to give you an ethnographic background. (laughs) During another voiceover, I read the liner notes from a Ziggy Marley CD as if people didn't know that Ziggy Marley was Bob Marley's son. Are you kidding me? Gross! The thing with me in college, like many people at that age, as I was discovering new things, I thought I was the first person to discover them. It's about three degrees away from me saying, you guys, did you know about this thing? This thing you can mow the lawn with? It's called a lawn mower. Am I blowing your mind? Welcome to me in the 90s. I must have been insufferable.
0: <laughs> I don't know about that, Liz. <laughs> you were clearly hilarious, oh, I think, in you. the 90s. Um, and so you've been you know, working on Caboose and Awesome Things. Um, several years now at this point, right? In, in, in and called this hack. i have kind of put out several issues. Although, you know, you continue to do this through the, the pandemic. And, you know, as I mentioned at, at the top of the show, uh, Chicago Gets Four Stars, which is created by, by Joe Mason. That's a relatively new zine. I guess, you know, I'm learning today that this also was the first one that you created, Joe. Um, but I guess what I'm wondering is, like, what made you want to create something focused on Chicago history in the midst of this pandemic?
1: Uh, Time. For years, I've always wanted to... For years, I've had this thought about doing a zine on uh, Joe's uh, Joe's highly biased guide to Chicago, um, but never quite got around to that. Um, and I'd been doing writing for a couple other sources. I briefly had a column in The Reader on some Chicago history. I wrote for the Steampunk Chicago website, and my focus was... My idea was, like, to try to make Chicago, the, like, the steampunk library, and so let's present some history, and let's give an... Yeah, that, that didn't do anything, but I wrote a hell of a lot. And uh, Chicago got four stars. I, put, I kind of plucked a lot of things that I... A few things I had published, and a number of articles that I had not published before. And so, like, all right, let's put this together in a thing.
0: Well, Cool. And, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the package that I received from you, it contained the first two issues of Chicago Gets Four Stars. And, you know, I think our listeners would like to hear the second issue now in its entirety.
1: All right. Strap in. (laughs) The Great Chicago Fire burned October 8th through 10th, 1871. Three and a third square miles burned and upwards of 300 people died. Twenty fires hit the city in the week prior. On October 8, 1871, a more calamitous fire swept Peshtigo, Wisconsin. It burned 1,875 square miles, and 800 people died. A smaller fire swept Wisconsin's Door Peninsula. Michigan's concurrent Port Huron fire also burned 1,875 1, square miles and claimed 50 lives. It was part of the Great Michigan Fire that consumed 3,900 square miles. The initial sparks for these fires may be unknown, but what an architecture in the Midwest's 1871 drought certainly fueled the disasters. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: And an issue about a disaster made in the midst of a disaster makes a certain sense. Uh, but would you tell our listeners why this issue is so short?
1: Uh, it's short because I printed it on a matchbook.
0: And how did that come about?
1: Uh, actually, because of the pandemic. So I put out uh, Chicago Gets Four Stars number one, and began participating in the online Zine Club Chicago. Um, I put out Chicago Gets Four Stars number one in May. That month happened to be um, what was the title of the one? It was the uh, bite-sized issue. Oh no, it was.
2: Trial size? Bites? Uh, oh, fun-sized
1: fun fun issues. Size. of It was fun-sized issues of zines. As a bunch of people brought out these teeny little, like, uh, inch-by-inch like inch zines and uh, showing up these little ones, I was just like, oh, I could totally do, like, an issue on a matchbox. I should do one on a matchbox about the Chicago Fire. And so, bam, there it was, the inspiration. And it also struck me like a matchbox, I could actually put the... Uh, it actually stands kind of like a book in that there's the, uh, the spine. So it all, it all just lays out together so well. It was just one of those moments of like, this is the thing.
0: Well, it's pretty cool. Though I admit when I I got the package and and read your note at first and you said that there were two issues in it, I was kind of just looking around before I found the batch (laughs) book which drifted to the bottom of the envelope. I was like, I only have one here. But anyhow. um,
1: But I also like to say that uh, number two is the zine that can destroy all other zines. That's (laughs) great.
0: great. So, you know, given its size, you can imagine issue two of Chicago Gets uh, Four Stars possibly ending up in a drawer with various other odds and ends. Making it the perfect subject for an issue of Drunk Drawer, which is the creation of our third guest, Eric Bartholomew. Eric, what led you to create Junk Drawer?
3: Well, I was looking at the uh, zine, like the zine uh, Thrift Score was an inspiration, and I was I was working at a place in eBay for things, and I'd just grown up going to garage sales and finding odds uh, and ends, and Eventually, I just hit upon this the, the idea of like, what that space where people save things that they not really collectible, quite, but things that they want to keep. They don't really want to throw them away, and but they don't really have a place. But that that place kind of becomes the junk drawer. It's kind of an overlooked space, and I wanted to take a look in that in that sort of junk drawer realm and see uh, what was in there.
0: And what do readers tend to find in Junk Drawer, the zine?
3: Well, each uh, issue of Junk Drawer has kind of a different angle on Junk drawer theme, and that is kind of that that random space where things kind of seem light. Um, the original idea was just going through my own Junk Drawer and looking at objects and wondering where they came from, sort of the stories behind them and why I was saving them and in cases what they even were, and um, so in each, each scene kind of went off kind of in a different, almost like on a tangent, went off on different different things. I can read the, a little bit from my first issue. Um, the introduction to it was, it starts as, everybody has a junk floor, whether it be an actual floor or a hidden away shelf or a corner of the closet. There is a space in life for random things. These are things that seem to just accumulate. They are too good to throw away. They are worth saving, but they haven't really found their place. The junk drawer is a holding chamber for objects caught in that folding pattern. Memory objects like ticket stubs from shows, notebooks from past classes, and that old pair of glasses part of your former look. Extra objects, mouse pad, another stapler, keychain, chain, back, in, back up things in case you need them in case something else gets lost. Objects that might come in handy one day, business cards from shops you're wanting to visit, and people you've met, and so that's the that's the zine about getting things secondhand. That first one, um, I can also read something from uh, a zine where it junk tour sort of kind of diverges into a different direction with the uh, junk tour landscape.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's the uh, junk. That's the sixth one I did.
0: Oh yeah, I, yeah. I remember that issue because in there you basically treat Chicago itself as a kind of oversized junk drawer, which I thought was a really interesting approach.
3: Yeah, and um, I started that one by saying how I was I was uh, searching for things, uh, just like wandering down an alley, looking out for interesting stuff to find. When I began noticing how like what I thought was something laying on the ground There's actually a pipe sort of attached to the sidewalk and then something on the back of the building and then I realized like that everywhere around like the entire city is like one vast junk drawer um, those, are, those are you know things that, uh, that just got left there maybe they weren't used anymore but they weren't taken away either. so and they can even provide kind of clues as to what uh
0: what the city was like. Well, I was particularly, you know, struck in that issue how, you know, you're picking up these bits and pieces of the built environment that seem baffling to those of us who are Chicagoans today. Um, But there's this really great part near near the end of that issue where you kind of use those bits and pieces to reconstruct a lost transportation line. And how did you end up doing that specifically?
3: Well, um, I think it started with... um, this this scene it just got me. I was just trying to observe everything around me in the around Chicago, all these little parts and pieces that are sometimes overlooked. And one such thing was just like a wall up in uh, up in Evanston that I just I've been driven past like all my life and hadn't really thought about what it was. And it turned out it was like It looked like it was part of a bridge. It had been a bridge support. Uh, leading to the Metro train, the Metro North line. And so I did some research and found out there had been a train, uh, a freight train that used to share the tracks with uh, the Metro line or the old Northwestern train that went through Evanston. But as um, as the commuters' uh, traffic became... Too heavy. Uh, the train lines had to reroute. They wanted to route it around downtown Evanston, um, so they they built this other track that went like out west, and then it merged up uh, just before Central Street. Um, and so I ended up tracing uh, the path of that train where it used to be, just by finding other pieces. I found like I would go a block over from there, and I found another wall. Um, I went to LeBas Woods, where there's a train line and a bridge going across. You can still find it. It looks like a, a trail now. And I looked on Google Maps, too, which helps uh, kind of map it out. And you can find, like, the hole. But, like, you could see the way it was.
0: And, you know, uh, one thing that you do in issues of junk drawer is that it's, you know, you don't just kind of chronicle these bits and pieces, um of the built environment in issue six and you know other kind of odds and ends and other issues. But you also kind of photograph the entire experience. Um, do you wanna talk a little bit about how you kind of pair uh, image and, and text? Because I think that's something too, right? I mean, zines just aren't you know a bunch of words. Oftentimes they're cartoons or clip art or kind of found images. And in your case, it's also an opportunity for you to kind of like showcase your, your interest in, in photography. So yeah, I mean, how do you kind of see the wooden image kind of operating hand in hand in, in these issues
3: yeah and and every every issue i think i've done for uh most of them the the image is is pretty much what starts me off uh whether it's an object or just observing something around the city um like in junk days i went around finding stuff and and, and taking pictures of things i found and where i found it and then writing about it later so yeah, and and, and junk in the landscape there I was uh, was going around, just spotting things, finding about them, or and then finding out about them later, uh, and then putting the putting all these photos in the in the zines. So the zines are usually filled with with photos that, where you can follow along with the, with the words.
0: And then, you know, past, in, in the before times, in the past, the not-so-distant past, um, you know, when I'd run into you at different, like, zine festivals, you would often, like, bring a handful of, of these odd objects, these odds and ends, um, and then to sort of challenge people to figure out what they were. Um, I never did particularly well yeah. on, on any of the challenges. But it was fascinating to me because then, you, you know, you would share the kind of history but behind these things. And I guess, you know, in, in the time that remains uh, with the three of you, In this episode, I kind of like to talk a little bit more about like zines themselves as a kind of historical record. And what gets me thinking about this is just sort of thinking about the the physical objects that I actually see right here in the studio with us. Our listeners can't see them. Um, But when you think about the form, you've got paper, staples, often the use of copy machines. I mean, these are materials and technologies that uh, by and large we tend not to use so much anymore. And yet, all of these zines continue to be created uh all three of you have a long experience creating them but there are many new people kind of creating zines every day right who are kind of new to to this form and so i guess my question is like why do you think it continues to endure even as tastes and technologies change and we can do so many things now online
2: I think in spite of the fact that we all have access to the entirety of the human experience in a virtual way we are meat we exist in the physical world and we want physical objects. Also I'll be the first to admit that the things that I write in my zine I'm a little shy about putting them online if somebody reads my zine they have to, if they want to respond to it, they have to sit down and write a letter or an email. Whereas a blog post or a tweet or whatever you've written on the internet, people can respond immediately and they don't necessarily think their thoughts all the way through. And by the way, this is not an original thought. This is something that Douglas Rushkoff pointed out. But... If we want to exist in a thoughtful way, communicating with each other, sometimes we need to take that offline so that we have time to consume the material, think about it before we reply, and not off-the-cuff respond in a way that is a, is a less thoughtful way of responding. And so it stands to reason—this I, I, isn't true for all zinesters, of course, but the writing that I do— you know, it goes through many drafts. I edit it. I have people look at it. I get some feedback. Not everybody is that way in their zines. I don't expect everybody to be that way. But that's the way that I am. And I feel like the journal, the diaries that I kept when I was younger were written. And that is the legacy, the tradition that I continue as an adult. And some of that it has to do with my age. Some of that has to do with what I grew up with and what I'm comfortable with. But um, I think the legacy of it in general is something that, you know, you want the physical... You know, it's the same way that people get into cassette tapes or what Eric enjoys about the physical world of the junk drawer. Um, I think that that is something that people crave. Um, Feelings, emotions are physical things. We have physical glands that we feel are physical emotions, and we want that to be... We want the physical objects that we have imbued with those physical feelings and vice versa.
0: And because they are these physical things, I mean, they, they can en- endure, right? So even though, I mean, zines have this kind of fragility to them, being by and large sort of paper objects, they're still like remarkable survivors. And, uh, you know, right now they're getting kind of absorbed into different archives across the country. They're providing these sort of invaluable accounts of deeply personal experiences. Or in the case of like, you know, what Eric is doing and and Joe is doing, like, very kind of idiosyncratic histories, right? Parts of the city or a community that most people might not know about, which is invaluable. And, you know, to go to what you were just saying too, Liz, I mean, there was something so special about Joe, like, asking for my mailing address and and sending that to me and like opening up that package and and also not telling me what it was too, which was great, the sort of like secret of it. And then being able to kind of read this issue, which then inspired me to kind of do this episode with you guys. Um, So I've got one final question, um, which is since you know this is a show about like Chicago history and Quimby's back in 2016 celebrated its 25th anniversary. uh, I'm gonna actually have us do a little speculating and kind of looking forward to the zines of the future, when Quimby's turns 50 in 2041, what do you expect that the zine scene is gonna look like? Joe, I'll give you the, the first stab at, at answering that.
1: It's gonna look the same. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I we were just talking about this the other day. I don't know if there is so much a zine scene as a zine network. And in Chicago, you. I feel like a hub has kind of come around Quimby's, and sort of out of Quimby's, some their former employees who have started things like Cake, uh, the Chicago Alternative Comics Expo, and Chicago Zine Fest. Um, so there may be all these individual little publishers and zine makers who table and sell their goods like at a zine fest, and they may not be connecting with each other like face to face on a regular basis as part of any seen but it happens like annually or all their the items that they have created go somewhere or even the items they create go to various libraries like DePaul Loyola University of Chicago all have zine archives so there yeah there's a sense of this collection and this network this coming together um to preserve these objects I think that'll be the same uh, on the 50th anniversary. That As long as you can get some pieces of paper, staple them together, and pour in your heart and soul, there will be these art objects.
0: Eric, anything that you'd want to add to that that future history?
3: Um, I think people will... I think people might be talking about, you know, remember when we used to write everything on Facebook, and younger people will say, what was, what's Facebook? They'll say, it looks like MySpace. Oh, well. But then the zines would still be there, you know, because you never know where the, the virtual world is going to end up, where, where everything you put up there is going to go, and zines are just, they're tangible. There's something you can hold, something you can pass along to someone.
1: Yeah, uh, like with the, um, despite the claims of the internet world, Print media ain't dead.
0: Yeah. And and Liz, I'd like to give you the, the last word on this, as the manager of Quimby's Perhaps, perhaps you still will be in twenty four. <laughs> I, <mean, laughs>
2: I guess it's my career. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: I hope that'll be a, you know a, would be a positive thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Right.
2: Um. Okay. Well, for those of us who have not migrated off world to Mars that has been terraformed. Uh, For those of us who uh, can't afford to leave the planet and are still here. um, (laughs) Well, you know, so the thing with stuff existing online is that, you know, a lot of this, like there's such thing as bit rot, right? So like, you know, as the electronics go through more and more permutations, you know, you might lose some of, you know, like the things that don't transfer or whatever. You know, you have hard drives that, you know, if you don't transfer the information from hard drive to hard drive, you lose the writing. Maybe you don't pay for the upkeep of the site, and so therefore all the writing that you did on it is dead. But paper, once you, if you paid for it or not or whatever, it's still there. I mean, whether it, you know, wilts or whatever, you got to take care of it or whatever. But, you know, it's actually in some ways more likely that it's easier to preserve um, because you don't forget that, it, that it's there and you don't have to pay for it to keep it going, whereas you might have to do that with the Internet. So one thing I, that I look forward to is seeing, you know, the topics that change, you know, how the world evolves. Like, oh, remember before times we didn't have to wear masks all the time, you know? Like, maybe we're going to have to wear masks forever. You know, maybe we have to get another shot in the fall. Who knows, you know? Um, or, like... What, how music changes, how subcultures change, whether it's, you know, I mean, arguably there's like, you know, a billion different subcultures right now, or are things going to be one major global c- culture. What You know, I'm interested to see how those topics are going to change. But I think the physical format of zines, I look forward to that continuing to be around for a long time. I hope it's not wishful thinking. Also because my livelihood depends on it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I know I can't wait to see what new zines will be coming out in, in the years ahead. Um, and that's our episode of A Pocket Guide to Hell. Um, I'd like to thank our very wonderful guests, uh, Eric Bartholomew, who was uh, joining us on the phone. Uh, Joe Mason and Liz Mason, who are here with us in the WLPN studio. As always, my co-host, Elliot Heilman, our producer, Annie Klein, and, of course, our home WLPN radio I am Paul DeRica, wishing you fine fellow Chicagoans to keep making history.